As Charlie Owens and Weezer once said, say it ain't so. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another installment of Championship or Bust with Mac, Zach, and Josh. This is one I've been waiting for for a long time. 1919. And anyone who knows a thing about baseball knows exactly what's coming right now. You know, back then, it was a bad thing when gambling was involved. Now, it's widely encouraged. So, now at least the World Series, they pretend like they don't rig it. I guess that's the only real difference. But the gamblers still matter. Championship or Bust was designed specifically for episodes like today. So, let's get right to it. Game breakdown. Go ahead. All right. Well, 1919 World Series, series that would live in infamy. In 1919, the Reds, they were an up-and-coming team. Their first World Series team, led by center fielder Ed Roosh and an incredibly deep pitching staff, they were looking to benefit from this new World Series format where instead of a best of seven, it was a best of nine. Gross. Just so long. The league was looking for more money. Even back then, I don't know why they don't do this now. Best it's of nine. Somebody call Manfred and tell them they got to do that. You're not wrong. Give it time. Next CBA. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. Max Scherzer shaking in his boots. And then the White Sox, after coming off a down year in 1918, after winning the World Series from 1917, they were a powerhouse again. With players like Shoeless Joe Jackson coming back from the World War and carrying the team along with the new manager. Everything seemed to be going right. They were firing on all cylinders. They were good on the field. But what people really didn't see was that the players and the owner, they did not get along. White Sox owner Charlie Comiskey had a reputation, a bad one. He was known to be underpaying players. He was known to pinch pennies so bad that he wouldn't let the players get their uniforms cleaned. Jeez. And they turned black from the dirt and sweat. Hence the name, the Black Sox. And I never actually knew that. Yeah, that's nuts. why. That's why. It has nothing to do with the scandal. It's actually mm-hmm. because of the jerseys were so, so dirty. I obviously we wouldn't let them clean their uniforms, but I did not know that was the reason. That that's was the reason. But one of the worst things, and what some believe to have driven this coup against, <laughs> against the league and against the White Sox, was that uh, Comiskey told the White Sox manager to shut down Eddie Sicott in the last days of the regular season after he hit 29 wins on the season, knowing that if he hit 30, they'd have to pay him another $10,000. And many (laughs) believe that Sicott had agreed agreed to the fix because of this, while others believe that Sicott had agreed to the fix well before that. That one kind of is up for debate. But you can kind of believe why players would get pissed off at that. Sakata and other uh, players included. Sounds like Oakland's current uh, owner. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then you have owners like the Yankees, where CeCe Sabathia threw at a guy so he didn't hit his innings limit. His innings, whatever, milestone. And the Yankees just paid him anyway. Yeah. But not everybody on the White Sox... Well, everybody on the White Sox hated the manager, but not everybody was going to go to the extremes to get back at him. The clubhouse was divided into two factions... One group was the straight lace players. Later, they called them the Clean Sox, a group that included players like second baseman Eddie Collins, catcher Ray Schalk, and the ace of the White Sox staff, Red Faber. The two factions were known to rarely speak to each other on the field or off the field, and the only thing they really had in common was that they didn't like Comiskey. Now, getting into the details here, 
what is known on September 18, 1919, White Sox first baseman Chick Gandel, the ringleader of the group, would meet with Joe Sport Sullivan at a Boston hotel. Now, Sullivan was a bookie in Boston, and he had a plan to have the White Sox throw the World Series for $80,000. And notorious New York crime boss Arnold the Brain Rothstein <laughs> was the one who was backing this, and he was known to have bet $270,000 on the Reds to win the series. Three days after this meeting, on the 21st of September, some White Sox players would meet with Gandil at his hotel room where they would talk about fixing the series. And the reports are divided on whether Joe Jackson actually went to this or not, but it's pretty well known that he was involved. And the scheme actually got a boost because Red Faber, the White Sox ace, was not for throwing the series, but he ended up getting the flu and did not play the entire series. And catcher Ray Schalk said that if he was healthy, he would have thrown the most games of the series. Obviously, he's the ace. He would have started game one and so on and so forth. And with him out and two of the three other starting pitchers in on the fix, well, there that's how things go. So, days later, October 1st, the series starts. There were already some rumors among gamblers that the series was fixed, and a sudden influx of money started getting bet on the Reds, and the odds started to fall rapidly. Even people in the press box were catching word, and they were really on the lookout for things that, you know, didn't seem right. And, well, it didn't take them long. Eddie Sakat took the mound in game one, and on the second pitch... Well, he hit the leadoff batter, and most thought that this was the signal telling everybody that the fix is on, we're doing this. And it did appear that way. Sakat threw a decent game until the fourth inning, where he just gave up a bunch of hits in a row and then made a bad error. And right then and there, sports writers were like, oh, that that throw he makes nine times out of ten, that is not something he's going to miss. And that rally in that inning with that error gave the Reds the win. Game two saw the other pitcher who was known to be fixing the series, Lefty Williams, on the mound. While he tried to be less obvious than Sakat, throwing three scoreless innings, he then just walked the Reds around the bases in the fourth <laughs> inning. Then went back to being unhittable. <laughs> but the damage was done, and with no hitting at all whatsoever by the White Sox, Gandil, big part of that, the Reds would take game two. And after this game, the players were able to get themselves $10,000. Even though they had asked for the $20,000 they were supposed to get and got ignored multiple times. In game three, White Sox rookie Dickie Kerr, one of the clean Sox, would throw a gem. Got to give up three hits and no runs. And because the players didn't get their money after game two, well, they actually tried a little bit. Gandil himself would knock in two of the White Sox three runs. Now, game four, Sakat taking the mound again. And again, two really bad, uncharacteristic errors in the same inning let the Reds score. And the White Sox bats did nothing. A quick win for the Reds. And then after this game, Sullivan would come in, give the players the $20,000 that they were owed, which was split between a couple players, specifically, uh, importantly, Lefty Williams, who was starting game five, 
and one of the other players, Felch, who would, in Game 5, make a couple really bad plays in the outfield on back-to-back balls, and again, would lead to another Reds win with the White Sox bat, bats quiet again in another shutout. Game 6, so Dickie Kerr on the mound again, but this time, didn't do so well. The Reds jumped out to a 4 nothing lead, thanks to three White Sox errors, of course. But the White Sox would battle back, trying to make this a bit of a series, and they would end up winning the game in the 10th inning off of, who else? Gandil being a hero at the plate again. That's so this guy did a really good job of covering his own ass. Yeah, that's so funny. He really right? did. <laughs> he was the leader of the whole thing. Yeah. Leader of the whole thing. The hero two games. Anyway, game seven. Sikot on the mound again. Manager went back to his, his ace. I mean, I, I guess you kind of have to because he didn't know. And despite throwing two really, really bad games, he actually threw really well. He gave up just one run and the White Sox would win this game. And this scared the crap out of Sullivan and Rothstein so bad that Sullivan sent an associate to Lefty Williams before game eight and basically said, if you don't throw this, we're going to kill you and your wife. (laughs) (laughs) And throw it, he did. (laughs) He just threw meatballs over the plate in game eight, and the Reds would take advantage. They got a bunch of base runners, and even though the White Sox pulled Williams real fast, his replacement did not do well. And the Reds would pile on 10 runs in the game, and they would win the series far and away. A lot of a lot of fans took this series for face value, but you can definitely see a lot of uncharacteristic plays. Right, the clutch hitting was not there at all whatsoever for the White Sox, and just mm-hmm. the amount of errors. And obviously, we've talked about it before. There were a lot more errors back in this time, but the guys making the errors and the plays on which the errors were made, there was a we're lot obvious. of things right. that didn't quite add up going yeah. on. But I will talk this one over to Mac, who will talk more about what happens next. Sounds good. So, talk about the trial. Because obviously it got to that point. So, the trial starts on June 27th, 1921. Prior to this, Eddie Seacott and Shula Show Jackson actually wrote written confesses, which they later recanted. So, on July 1st, so four days after the trial starts, prosecution decides to um, announce that Sleepy Bill Burns, who was one of the former White Sox players, was under indictment for his part in the scandal. And they wound up selecting the jury members, and actually it was pretty um, happy, I guess, between the White Sox players who were accused and the other players. The other players came in, they shook hands, They at one point they even tickled Buck Weaver because it was known in the locker room that he was very ticklish. So it seemed very um, relaxed and kind of informal. Jury selection actually took a while, but on July 15th they finally got their jurors and it started up. Um, some of the more notable parts, because this goes really long, so I'm just going to hit the main points. Um, Charles Comiskey was called to the stand, and he became so agitated with all the questions that the defense was asking, he actually stood up and shook his fist at one of the defense <laughs> attorneys. Um, oh. And the worst testimony, or I guess the most incriminating, came when Burns himself took the stand. He admitted that um, the White Sox intentionally fixed the series, he mentioned the involvement of some of the gamblers, and he actually testified that Eddie Seacott threatened to throw the ball clear out of the park 
if that was necessary to lose one of the games. So threw Seacott right under the bus. Um, but after more evidence and stuff, the defense ultimately rested. Case went to the jury. The jury actually only deliberated for less than three hours. And they returned not guilty verdicts across the board for all of the accused players. That's so crazy. you may be wondering if they were acquitted, then why'd they get banned? So baseball, this was obviously a black stain. And it was really the first black stain um, in sports history that was this incriminating. So um, before I get to that, among the counts were conspiracy to defraud. Uh, there were nine counts that they were all acquitted for. Um, Ten players who were not implicated as well as the manager, were each given bonus checks by Comiskey in 1920 for, I guess, not being accused or of being part of the scandal. <laughs> and that amount equaled the difference between the winner's and loser's share for the World Series. So Comiskey actually did right by them for not cheating, I guess. He paid them the amount that they would have made if they won. So yeah, I know the pinch pennies, that's right. kind of uncharacteristic. Yeah. Right. So that's... It was fifteen hundred dollars. It was equivalent to twenty one nine hundred in twenty twenty two. Um. Wow. So as I was saying before, black scene for the sport. So the owners decided to devise a plan, which is now all over sports today. Um. They wanted a person who could kind of oversee. So they wanted to pick Kinsaw Mountain Landis, and they ultimately did pick him. Kinsaw Mountain Landis was a federal judge. He was widely respected. Um. Had some values that don't exactly match society today. Um, but he does have a plaque in Cooperstown despite his character issues. But the plan was he was going to head a three-member council, basically, of people who were not connected to a team but would kind of oversee. So basically they wanted a three-headed commissioner. Uh, Kinesaw Mountain Landis instead said, no, I want all the power. I want to be the sole commissioner. And the only way he would agree to do it was if he was granted unchecked power over the entire sport what he says goes so this was very controversial at the time because in times like this this was never done but Kinesaw Mountain Landis did pave the way for many other power hungry nut jobs that are taking over sports today oh, Rob Manfred <laughs> right Roger Goodell um, so this makes it another reason why this <clears throat> entire sports world forever and you could argue that this is a good thing or a bad thing but for our entire lives and for the lives of our parents and grandparents, this was the way sports has become. Every sport has a commissioner. Every sport kind of has that figurehead that does all the owner's dirty work. And that's what Kinesaw Mountain Landis started. So going back to the Sox here, he banned them anyway, despite their acquittal. So this is actually the first thing he did when he took over in 1921 was confirm that they're banned from baseball and created that um, group of ineligibility. While they were still not banned from the Hall of Fame, that took place when Pete Rose came in. They had an ineligible list, which Pete Rose ultimately joined. Then once Pete Rose came up to the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame board approved the idea that anyone on the ineligible list is not eligible for the Hall of Fame. So technically, you could have been eligible for the Hall of Fame and just not been voted in prior to that, despite being on the ineligible list. But... This right here is a quote from Kinesaw Mountain Landis after the acquittal. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers 
where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball. And that's kind of that golden rule now that's in every clubhouse. Well, uh, so that you should uh, look long. at the 2017 Astros. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, at least they didn't throw the game. They were trying to win. So, I, no, you know, it's the typical Pete Rose hollow argument. Yeah. But, I mean, we'll talk more about it when we debate. But um, I also wanted to point out, though, the last part of this. So, the typical Black Sox are known as the eight men out. They were actually not the only ones banned. So there was another guy named Hal Chase. There was actually a couple guys who were banned, but the notable one was Hal Chase. He was banned, but he was unofficially blackballed starting in 1919, actually, for throwing games that were not related to the World Series. He had a history of it. So he apparently was the middleman between Chick Gandle and the Gamblers. It was never totally confirmed, but that was his reason for being formally banned it was an excuse to kind of formalize banning him and it barred him from both the majors and the minors as well so that's really how the trial went um they were acquitted um it was actually pretty low-key in the beginning and you know the players seemed like it was more of a positive upbeat mood yeah um and then it kind of got dramatized in the movies with the say and so joe the classic quote and all that Mm -hmm. but that's pretty much how the trial went um just wanted to bring up one quick story. Back when the World Series was happening, Josh mentioned the catcher shock. Um, after game one, he was very confused and thought his signs were being either misinterpreted or ignored by Seacott. And then especially after game two, Lefty Williams pitched, he knew something was up. So he told the manager, Kid Gleason, who then told Comiskey, who then told both the NL and AL presidents at the time. And they both just dismissed the fix as nonsense. Like, eh, no big deal. Don't worry about it. You know what that kind of reminds me of? What? The 1990s with steroids. <laughs> hey, guys, Mark Wire did Andro. Are you kidding me? We can't talk about this. <laughs> yeah. making too much money. But now that he's retired, we can throw yeah. him under the bus. Just a funny story. Oh, Imagine that catcher. <laughs> it's just funny. It's like, what? Are my signs getting mixed up? One's fastball. He's <laughs> like... Honestly, a little off topic, but Ray Shawkman, like he's not a whole he he's in the Hall of Fame. He he almost definitely shouldn't be. But looking at some of the these pitches that they threw in those time periods, and he was actually the first person to ever back up throws to first base, he had to catch a lot of different types of <laughs> and true. throwing in the cheating and the crookedness and that he kind of remained the stagnant and he was the good guy in the scandal. I can definitely see why people were Quick to vote him in. Just imagine having to catch the cot, like when he, even when he wasn't cheating. Like the guy was a knuckleballer who mm-hmm. also threw spitballs. Like that must not be fun to catch. <laughs> yeah, but he still sits in the basement, unfortunately. But he does have a lot of contributions to the game. I will definitely say that he's known as a star defensive catcher, and um, obviously just being the first to kind of pave the way in a lot of ways, while also being kind of the the voice of reason in the room. And that seems to be a thing with catchers. Like when the 1980, we'll talk about the 1986 Mets in 60s or so episodes from now. But Gary Carter was kind of the one clean, nerdy guy yeah. amongst a bunch of Coke addicts. <laughs> so it's something about catchers with the heads on their shoulders. Just kind of an interesting thought. 
Yeah, well, you know what? Also, after the series, we can also, you know, congratulate Lefty Williams as being one of two pitchers to only to ever lose three World Series games in one World Series. On Congratulations purpose. Congratulations to him. Wow, <laughs> on he purpose. did it on purpose. <laughs> on purpose. That's one of those where you almost kind of want to say you threw it just to kind of save face, even if you didn't throw it. You're just like, yeah, yeah, I let you win those. Yeah. I just can't imagine a best of nine. It must feel so dragged out. Like, I don't know. I start throwing the games too. More game, more money. Yeah, I guess, but oh, no way. Well, Rob Manfred has total and unequivocal control. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I hate Rob Manfred. <laughs> Nothing will ever be more perfect than that time that he was doing. I forgot what they were doing. It was like the All-Star game or something. And he was talking about the strike or the upcoming strike. And just in the background, you just start seeing the lightning behind him. It's like, <laughs> wow, this is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I know Mike is going to cover this a little bit in the Hall of Famer section, but I still I'm in shock that Joe Jackson still somehow batted over 350 in the series. It it makes oh, yeah, absolutely no sense that. to me. It just blows my mind. But actually, that's a perfect segue into the Hall of Famer section. So we'll start it up. Umpire Billy Evans, yay! <sighs> At least they're very relevant. Very relevant. The baby umpire. He was known for being like the youngest umpire at the time and the youngest oh. umpire to call World Series. He was like 22 years old when he started. Oh, wow. So notable guy. Um, but starting with the quote-unquote losing White Sox, uh, we talked about Ray Schalk. This was his second World Series, and he has one ring, obviously, not this time. Hit 304 in the series with a 733 OPS. 7 for 23, no extra base hits. Said before, definitely a basement guy, but definitely a historically important catcher. Um, Eddie Collins, we've talked about a million times. I feel like he's a mainstay on this show. Sixth appearance, now four and two in the World Series. Struggled. 226 batting average, seven for 31, one double, one RBI, and one stolen base. For perspective, in the regular season, he hit 319 and had an 805 OPS. So judging from his stats, he's kind of lucky that he didn't get lumped in with this. Uh, but he is level four, number four uh, for second baseman between Jackie Robinson and Rod Carew. Uh, Red Faber, who's another one of the clean socks, he didn't play in the World Series, but he had a really rough regular season. 11-9, a 3.83 ERA. So to put it in perspective for Arrow, it was an 84 ERA+. plus. Uh, this would have been his second World Series appearance. Um, he's one of my last pitchers ranked in level one. I have him ranked between Early Win and Jim Cott. Uh, moving on to the non-Hall of Famers that I we obviously have talked about a lot here so far, but just wanted to give you the stats to kind of give it all broken down. Shoeless Joe, um, second World Series appearance. He had 375 with a 956 OPS. He went 12 for 32, had a dinger, and six RBIs. Unbelievable. Yeah, so really doesn't look like he threw it from the statistical line. Obviously, he was involved, but... All in garbage um, time, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, number eleven. Yeah, right that that one that one home run actually was was the the one game that they they were up by a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. But number eleven in right field, I have him level two below Guerrero and above Kaline. And we've both said, and I think it's important to say here, we've all said that um, we would vote for Shula Show, and we would vote for P Rose. We've said that before. Um, I honestly, I think that. I agree more with the people who are against Joe Jackson 
than I am with the people who were against Barry Bonds. And I, I, what? Interesting. I, I think that's the cardinal sin in baseball. And I think especially now with everything that's going on, I'd still vote for Shoeless Joe, but I understand that viewpoint a lot more. I, and I get the steroid stance, but like, I'll never say that someone's wrong for saying they shouldn't be in. I personally think they should, but I get it when it comes to Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose. Um, but nowadays with gambling being so prevalent, that's way too important to damage the integrity of the game in that regard. I think it's one thing to try to cheat, to try to help your team win and to try to get in competitive edge. I think that's just human nature and that does happen, but to outright try to lose the game, I think just distorts the whole product in general. So I'm not against them being out. I would personally vote for them, but I understand the viewpoint. Um, continuing on with Eddie Seacott, Second appearance, he's now one and one in the World Series. He, as Josh said, went one and two, two point nine one ERA. So the ERA actually wasn't terrible. Remember, this was the dead ball era, though. Uh, he has seven to five strikeout to walk ratio. Uh, as we've discussed in the past, he's not on the Hall of Fame list, but I think he's the guy who definitely could have been if you know history went a different way. Uh, for the winning Reds, we actually only have one Hall of Famer, and Josh mentioned him. It's his first and only appearance, so welcome to the podcast, Ed Roush. Uh, he was a center fielder who played primarily with the Reds, but also played with the Giants and another team or two. He won two batting titles, had a career 323 batting, uh, sorry, 323 batting average, and an 815 OPS. Um, obviously, like everyone else in that era, he was not much of a power bat. He had 68 career home runs, 981 career RBIs. 2,376 hits in 1967 games. Again, 323 hitter. So kind of the type of guy Zach likes. Yeah. Um, you know, um, an old school Michael Brantley, if you will. Oh. Um, he only had a 45.8. Oh, you career. know Zach wishes he was alive in this time just so he could see all the singles. <laughs> oh, oh, what a nice singles. bunt. What a nice double switch and bunt. Oh, my God. The sacrifice squeeze. But anyway, uh, he had a 45.8 career war. I do have him in my hole. Uh, because of the multiple batting titles primarily. Um, he did struggle in the series, though. But when he did hit, he hit it well. So 214 batting average, 6 for 28, but he had two doubles and a triple. So I have him on the list at level 1, ranked 17th for center fielders. I actually have him sandwiched between two modern guys. So he's just below Andrew Jones and just above Jim Edmonds. So those are the Hall of Famers there. Um, before we move on to the current stuff, I, I had a question for you guys and it was standing out to me. So this, um, team has kind of the rare, um, designation that there's two movies that involve them. Field of Dreams with Shoeless Joe and obviously Eight Men Out. Is there any team in your mind in sports history that's anywhere near as culturally relevant in a way that stood the test of time that the Chicago Black Sox did. Huh. I didn't prep you guys on this, so I know that. That's a good by design. That's a really good question. I'll see what you come up with. I have a couple in mind, mm. but I don't think they're quite to that extent. And I'm not just talking about like sports history. I'm talking pop culture too. Right. Like say it ain't so Joe is a classic quote mm. that still goes on. I mean, off the top of my head, 
Um, the, the Dodger teams with Jackie Robinson, I know they made a few movies about that, I'm sure. Them bombs, for sure. Yeah. And the one with, uh, what's his chat with Bozeman, 42, right? Or 20, 42, 42. Yeah, yeah, 42. Yeah. That one immediately came to my head. I'm trying to think. This is a good question, though, off the top. I probably should have prepped you guys on it, so I apologize. But I just wanted no. to see if there was any like natural improv thoughts. Um, Murderer's Row came up for me uh, mm-hmm. because obviously prior to the Yankees and then Lou Gehrig, yo, obviously the myth of Babe Ruth, the yeah. legend of Babe Ruth, and then you have Lou Gehrig um, with the luckiest man on the face of the earth and tragically passing away, and Lou Gehrig's disease still being well known and still not having a cure. Yeah, I thought that was a possibility. Um, on a much less grim note, I thought the 85 Chicago Bears. Oh, um, yeah. You know, they still have Coach Dick, um, you know, Jim McMahon is still relevant. The Super Bowl shuffle um, still goes viral every February. Uh, they weren't the best team of all time because obviously they didn't go undefeated, but they're up there as one of the best teams of all time. And they, you know, they're still constantly talked about just because honestly they were they were cool. People got into it. I don't think there's really any basketball teams that match it, though. Oh, the Showtime Lakers, maybe? The Showtime Lakers were my thought, and maybe the 90s Bulls. Right, yeah, yeah. But Definitely those two. I feel like the two of them were not far enough removed from them, as crazy as it sounds. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe, maybe Showtime. I feel like the 90s Bulls are just so fresh in our heads. Maybe it was the last dance, but when... Last Dance came out at such a convenient time because when COVID shut down sports, yeah. there was nothing to watch, and everybody watched Last Dance because it was the only new sport you had. Yep. So that's definitely an, a possibility. The Bad Boy Pistons probably aren't quite there. The 2000 mm-hmm. Lakers probably aren't quite there because they weren't together long enough. I think Showtime is probably the best example. You're right. Yeah. It's not a pro team, but with the with the 1918, uh, 1980 miracle. I knew. I was going to turn it over to you for that one, but uh, yeah, for sure. I'm talking yeah. any sports team in general. Like, and yes, that would that would be my response. <laughs> that would be my response. <laughs> I figured. No shock here. <laughs> but I still think, out of all of them, if we're comparing them, I still think the Black Sox are more culturally relevant. And out of all the teams we're listing, besides, I mean, I guess Murderers Row, right. none. All of them are much, much more modern when they took place. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think Miracle on Ice is pretty relevant. They didn't yeah. let they didn't let players go to the Olympics last year, and we kind of still don't like Russia. <laughs> I'm aware, but it's thirty, but it's only been thirty years, forty years. This is true. It's been it was nineteen eighty, right? Forty years, yes. So forty-four years in. Forty-four years, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see how that's the same case in. 40 years. But the fact that the, I think it's just so interesting, the fact that this team was really the first team that's still culturally relevant in the year 2024. That's a good point. I'm, I'm still trying to think of teams. I mean, I wonder, you wonder how important the, the Astros will be, but it seems like it's already died down because of the way baseball handled it. And that was on purpose. I think maybe the 72 Dolphins, but I lean more toward the 85 Bears. Yeah. Just because, honestly, they're the cool factor. I, I think the answer here is Miracle would compete. I think the Murderer's Row competes. Yeah, maybe and, Lakers. And Bums. Mm-hmm. I think those would be the three. 
No, you're right. But just thought it'd be an interesting idea. Yeah. And I know you said this before. It's just so funny that the the way gambling has come back into sports now as this thing that's accepted and like supported. It's it's just so interesting. I think it's dangerous. It is. I'm, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm taking part in it, but I think it's dangerous. Because yeah. these games, a lot of the, and not even so much for baseball, but sports in general, are just so easy to manipulate if the wrong person's involved. The NBA did have a scandal like this with Tim Donaghy. Oh yes, Thistle was involved with gamblers, and he's he spent time in jail. I don't know if he's still in jail now, but it's a problem. And, like, football had several guys who got suspended for not betting on football. Calvin Ridley was the only one who got suspended for betting on football, but a bunch of guys were suspended for gambling while at practice on other sports. Mm. You're telling me that they're if they're willing to do that, you're really telling me they're not betting on football on the side? Right. There's a lot of possible problems. And football is very easy to rig if you really wanted to. Any play has a penalty on it. You could call whatever you want. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's not really a good idea. I'm a hypocrite because I gamble all the time, but it's not a good idea when you really think about it. No, I get it. It's definitely odd, like watching, tell like you know ESPN now, and they have like a parlay segment where they have you know actual analysts like go on and talk about gambling, like over unders and stuff. It, it just comes across as weird to me. Meanwhile, Pete Rose is still sitting in jail. <laughs> metaphorical jail. Yeah, metaphorical jail. But yes, <laughs> it's yeah, absurd. It's very strange. But no, I do think that it's a problem because, you know, you end up having people who are going to compromise the product. And no matter what you do to police it, you're not ultimately going to be able to solve all the problems. Yeah. Because they may not be betting on their own, but they might tell their cousin or their friend, hey, like, you know, I'm feeling kind of good tonight. Wink, wink. Or, hey, you know, my leg's kind of tweaking. Wink, wink. (laughs) I can feel it in my bones. Wink, wink. Right. I just might not be able to compete with Devontae Adams tonight. One-on-one. My knee's bothering me. It is weird. I don't think, like, the big the media should be supporting it as much as they do. Like, ESPN should not be putting their name next to DraftKings or FanDuel. It's, it's just it's a weird combo. But why shouldn't they when MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL are doing it? The only problem I have yeah. is that they don't allow players to bet on other sports. I find that I find that incredibly hypocritical. Well, speaking for football, they they do allow them, I believe, to bet on other sports. They just don't allow them to do it while at the team facility, which I can get behind. That I get. Yeah, yeah. I, agree I mean, I'm, I'm I'm particularly referring to the Shane Pinto. Um, Oh, suspension okay. where he wasn't even the one betting. He was giving money to somebody else to bet for him on something that was not hockey. And he ended up getting banned. They're not banned. He got suspended 41 games for gambling because of it. Yeah, that's crazy. Which I find incredibly hypocritical considering the Ottawa senators sponsor on their helmet is bet three, six, five. It's a strange world we're living in. But hey, case. don't bet. But yeah, Ridley got suspended for a year for betting on NBA and NFL games. But he was betting on his own games. He deposited $1,500 when he's making millions. And his response when asked was, I just effed up, period. 
<laughs> I made a super mistake. I, I, I respect his honesty. He owned it. He, he owned know, it. Pete Rose didn't own it for a while, and that's honestly probably part of the reason why he's not treated as well by baseball. Mm-hmm. Ridley owned up quick. I still don't know if he should have only gotten a year suspension. Want to get into the, the current stuff real fast? Yeah, I'll do it. We can start with everyone's favorite uh, new signing and head case, Marcus Stroman, Long Island native. Ugh. <laughs> Why? With the Yankees. Why? So the, the heaviest media capital in the world for yeah. sports gets the biggest head case in baseball. But dude, um, he is so excited. He's been doing he's done nothing but post about how badly he wanted to be a Yankee since he got signed. Well, he he was just talking about how New York fans are racist like two months ago and now all of a sudden he's so thrilled. Yeah, that, those are just Mets fans. We don't like him anyway. Fair. But I just think it's a matter like the second he gets booed. He's gonna cry. He's gonna cry on and Twitter. He will. And, and he, he will. will. Food and he will. <laughs> he will. That's just how it is. Welcome Absolutely. to New York. Um, like, I just don't like for a guy who's been exposed as that thin-skinned. I think it's a horrible idea. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming. To be quite honest with you, yeah. I lost my respect for Strowman, not because of the crying thing and the calling fans racist thing. It was that he was such a big part of that team that won at the World Baseball Classic, whatever year that was, 2013 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then decided that last year he was going to play for Puerto Rico. Why? (laughs) I still don't understand that. Must have changed his mind. Like, yes, that's your heritage. You were born and raised in America. Like, got to play for Italy? I mean... Yeah, right. (laughs) The World Baseball Classic is so hollow, anyway. Yeah, but I just I don't I don't know I don't understand that one. But no, like, so what was the contract number for Strowman again? Yeah, I wanted to point this out. It's 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 two years, thirty-seven. So that's eighteen mil a year, and he actually declined his player option with the Cubs for this year. He could have been making twenty-one, so he lost three mil. Um, but I guess he's on an arguably better team. Probably because of personality. Yeah, because but he also struggled in the second half of the year. Like I'm looking at this right now, Uh, Seth Lugo got a three year, forty (laughs) five million dollar contract with the Royals, right? So I threw a stat head comp in. Shout out to stat head, great, great work that they do. Um, The only thing that Strowman has over Lugo is he pitched one more game and made the All Star team. Lugo has a higher WAR. Started more games, threw more innings, has a better win-loss percentage, a better ERA, a better ERA+, plus, more strikeouts, a higher strikeout percentage, less walks, and a less walk rate. Wasn't Lugo a reliever for a hot minute, too? But he started one more game. So Stroman played one more game. Lugo started one extra game. There were two games that Stroman didn't start. Um, so Lugo got less money and got an extra year and he was better than Stroman across the board and he's much less of a headache and he's handled New York before gotten booed and didn't care I think that and I could be I could be entirely wrong here I think that's because Lugo has just been you know evenly mediocre Strowman's yeah. been very good and very bad. Yes. That's fair. I think that's why. Yeah, that's fair. Like, I, I guess you're going with the high-risk, high-reward high guy. Reward. Yeah. Or the medium-risk, high-reward guy. I mean I, – I get that. But at the same time, like, when you know a guy has the ability to implode in the second half of the season, 
and a guy who can't handle criticism the best. And I, I, I like Marcus Stroman because he's, you know, he's from like two miles from where we grew up. I want to see him do well. The hometown kid's home. I just, I think it's a disaster waiting to happen. I do. Well, you know what? He and Carlos Rodon can get in the bathtub together and cry themselves. <laughs> yeah, that that's I the just... wild card this season. Honestly, the X factor for yes. the Yankees this year is Carlos Rodon. Right. right. You know what? That's funny. It's funny you say that because that's literally what Cashman said like three days ago yeah. about how Rodon is going to be great and he's the X factor. No, I'm not saying X factor in terms of necessarily being great. I'm saying our season is going to depend on how he does. Correct. Oh, I know you didn't say that, but that's what Cashman yeah, said. Yeah, no, 100% correct. Oh, I'm if, sure. If Rodon turns out to be your number two, which you thought he was, then Stroman is your number three or number four. And Cortez is Cortez four. does. So. It, it's a and decent deal. Mark Schmidt, number five. Yeah, for a number three That's a starter, loss every five days. Congratulations. If we win 60%, who cares? Yeah, but then, uh, so I thought about this. this. This probably means we're out on Snell. I know we offered him, uh, what was it, 150 mil? 150 Yeah. Oh, you guys didn't already hear? Blake Snell's a Dodger. Ah, uh, funny. Uh, By the time this myself. is out, he's going to be a Dodger. I'm going to kill myself. Don't worry. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Um, I don't know. It's not a terrible deal for a number three slash four starter. Uh, it could be worse. They're not spending too much money. So, I think knowing that the Yankees were in on Montas and seeing that Montas is making yeah. 14 and Stroman's making 18, I'll take Stroman at 18. No, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts on him? No, I hope the guy does well. I, Me too. I don't know what to expect, but I really hope he does well. I hope I'm wrong. He will be yeah. loved. He will be loved if he pitches well. Absolutely. He will be I'm one of the most loved players on the roster, yeah. but he will also be hated if he does not show up. I'm leaning toward the latter, but I am I am rooting for him to succeed. Obviously, he's on my team. I root for the front of the jersey, and I, I hope that he proves himself. All right. All right, Mikey, time to bring out the plaque. Um, everyone's favorite singles hitter retired. Mr. Hooray. Michael Brantley. Career, 298 hitter, just my type of guy. Uh, definitely not player. Hall of Fame worthy. Definitely not. Let's not start that. Um, well, I already made a Hall of Fame plaque for him. Did, yeah, did you guys yeah, go ahead and read it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I need to hear this. They've been waiting for this plaque for a while. So it's Michael Charles Brantley Jr., Cleveland, <laughs> AL, 2009 to 2018. He's reading it just like Manfred. Houston, AL, 2019 to 2023. A professional hitter who hit 300 or higher in seven seasons. Yay. Finished among the top 10 American League batters in six different seasons. Completed a 15 postseason game hitting streak, the highest in Astros history, and fifth highest in Major League history. Played in two World Series, organized a players-only meeting while injured in the 2022 World Series. Led the Astros to winning the <laughs> games and achieving immortality. Received five All-Star honors and won the 2014 Silver Slugger. You missed Trash Can Banger. Well, it wasn't confirmed in 2019. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, Michael Brantley. I think it's an airtight case, guys. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Are you I, me? I agree. I mean, yeah. Are you cosplaying as me right now? 100%. Yeah, I am. Definitely. You definitely got a better shot than Bill White. He's modern-day Ed Roush. <laughs> Sherman will never let me live that one down. Oh, my God. He shouldn't. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, you know, Brantley was a good player, dude. He, he was, was a good, good player, but his name is tainted because of the Astros. I'm sorry. <laughs> Marcus Breton hecked. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> oh my god, yeah. No shot in the hall. Just you know, my type of guy. Uh, former Saw Young winner Robbie Ray traded to Giants for Mitch Haniger and Mike's favorite right-hander Anthony Scalfini going back to Seattle. Um, good for the Giants. They got a pitcher. Fantasy team guru. <laughs> I think it was actually an interesting move here. You know, Ray's got, you know, this is not like a one-year deal or a two-year deal. He's got, he's got multiple years left on this contract. And the Giants, they couldn't find a guy in, in free agency. So they went and they traded for a guy. And I don't think they really gave up that much. I mean, these Calpini has been around a long time. The guy's okay. You know, he's a four starter, maybe a five. Uh, I mean, Hanniger's a good player, but I don't know. You just you just signed uh, the best guy out of uh, out of uh, you know Korea. Do you really need uh, do you need him anymore? Probably not. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good move for the Giants. It is and not they a bad move for Seattle one. either. Yeah, yeah for the Giants, it's a good move. Yeah, they got a number one guy now. It's been around. Absolutely, Robbie Ray is a bit of a coin flip because of his injury, but he was Cy Young his last season. Um, He's been a consistent pitcher for a long time. Only really had the one great season, Uh, but definitely another kind of guy like Strowman, where you know you have a moderate risk and a high reward. So I don't know. I think he's a little more than moderate risk coming off of Tommy John, but yeah, yeah, not bad. All right, everyone's favorite uh, team. Uh, owner, Daddy Steve Cohen, um, signed Sean Manaya with the Mets for Big two years. Daddy got his bags. He yeah, finally you know, got a start. They missed on Yamamoto, so they swung with Manaya, hit the home run. Home run, Sean Manaya. <laughs> two years, 28. Is this now. all the Mets have this year? I think so. I don't think it's a bad deal. I mean, he's not, you know, he, he ain't what he was, but he's all right. He's still, he's still effective. He's fine. Yeah, but it's Cohen. I he, He's trying to push it you know this is the best he's got i mean like Sever- no no severino he's don't forget year anyway so maybe this is a placeholder yeah, don't forget severino that's what they said last year when they were trying to sign otani and they said oh we're waiting till next year because we're gonna get otani right <laughs> that's literally what he said who's up next year that he can go for good question juan soto oh oh touchy subject yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah yeah do you know how many you know how many Post I saw when the Yankees got Soto, that's that was Mets fans going, "Oh, thanks for keeping him warm for us. We're gonna take him next year. Don't oh, you God, worry." Shut so up. So many. Shut up. Wonderful. Gross. Uh, that's all I had, Jeremy. I know you want to bring. I got. I got one more. I got one more baseball one for you. Um, and that is Teoscar Hernandez yep. signing with LA. Yep. Okay. Um, this is huge. There we go. This is a huge move for them. Under the radar. Because Hernandez, low-key, is the best right-handed hitter of lefties in the last four seasons of baseball. Is he really? So they needed a guy to hit lefties. So what did they do? They went and got the best one. Oh, my God. Classic Dodgers move. Otani, Yamamoto, Glasnow, Hernandez, Snell. What an offseason for the Dodgers. <laughs> Can't be floating around these rumors about Snell. Why not? John Morosi can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John Mar- Blake <laughs> Snell is on a plane to Los Angeles. Oh, uh, yeah. Dodgers just frustrate me. I, I hope they lose this year. We know. <laughs> I really hope they do, but I-, I do think they will. I'm not really – I'm honestly, as crazy as that is, I'm not worried about them. I mean, they always choke. Just put Kershaw in. It's fine. 
not even that. Like the big pitching lineups never really win ever historically. Point. Like the the Phillies had that one year where they had Lee, Halliday, Hamels, and they they didn't win. And then the night, you know, the '90s Braves won one title in 15 years. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like other big starting rotations. The Mets from a couple the years Mets, ago, they like got 2015. The World Series, they didn't deliver. Yeah. Absolutely, right. I'm trying to think of like big pitching rotations that won the World Series, who one to five were loaded. Few and far between. Anyway, I got I got two hockey ones for you. Oh boy. Um, the first one is Nylander signing an eight year. Eleven and a half million dollars per year extension with a full no movement clause, and backloaded with all of um, signing bonuses, so that is virtually buyout proof. I would just like to say that the Toronto Maple Leafs are the dumbest franchise in all of sports. I, I just want to ask, where are they getting this money from? That's what it, literally everybody is asking. And you ask, and you ask these Toronto fans; they are so delusional. It's like it's not, dude. It's not even funny anymore. Like it's honestly just sad at this point. <laughs> I mean, they, dude, they really think that the cap is going to go up this exponential amount, which the league has already proven they're not doing. And it's moving very slowly up. It's moving up, but not that fast. And they think that Tavares, who's going to be coming off of his whatever ridiculous $11 million contract is just magically going to take a, a deal at league minimum to continue to play for the team yeah. and and, and, and also produce at the same time. Yeah. Because he wore pajamas with their logo. On because it. he wore pajamas that one time. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely hilarious. And don't get me wrong. Nylander deserved every single cent of that contract, but you cannot really? feel the team. You cannot fill the team with, with guys making that much money in the front and having zero defense and even less than zero goaltending. How much are they paying uh, Morgan Riley? He's not making that much. Oh, okay. And honestly, he's not playing like he deserves yeah, to make that much. I know. But that just fits right in with the rest of the defense. They can't do anything. And oh. I think the biggest piece of news, honestly, in sports, is Cutter Gauthier refusing to play <laughs> for the Philadelphia Flyers <laughs> and getting traded. To the Ducks for Jamie Drysdale and a second round pick. This is honestly wild, wild. Like I never thought that I would see a day where guys in the NHL are just telling teams like I want to get traded now. Like I have like there's nothing. The guys never played a game in the NHL. Like this isn't basketball. This is basketball level crap here. It is. It is. This is this is that's literally what that's the first thing I thought when I saw it this. Like what is this basketball now where guys just tell teams like I'm going to this team and you're just going to make it happen. Player mobility era, man. Yeah, you know what's I interesting? Just, I though? cannot believe Philly's decent. Starting to hockey. Philly's decent right now. Like, I, it's crazy. It's, see, the thing with Philly is that um, they're in the class Tortorella stage, where yes. Tortorella will carry the team for three years. He's going to beat the crap out of all of his players, and he's going to just drive them into the dirt. And then three years from now, they're going to be hot garbage again because it wears off. And it's it happened time and time again with Tortorella. It, it always happens. Right? Time and yeah. time again. They're on pace to make the playoffs, though, I think, which is not Dude, the thing, that, the thing that really is crazy with this is that, you know, Goche is an American kid. The Flyers have some of the biggest and best names in American hockey in their hockey ops. And the guy's like, I just don't want to talk to him. Like, Jesus Christ, show some respect for your elders. <laughs> the real best thing, though, is what has this guy done? Nothing. 
He won a World Juniors. So it's not even like, has he even played in the NHL yet? No, no. he's a draft pick. So he, play, he 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 played in the World Juniors and they won a gold and he did very less, well for the team. Yes. This is less basketball and more Eli Manning football. Oh right. Yeah. When he refused to play for the Chargers and forced to trade the Giants, because before he even started, like I can almost understand this if it was like Connor McDavid or someone who's riding star, on a right. bad team. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of examples I'm sure that we can run through. Um, you know, maybe Connor Bedard in two years from now, but or Tage Thompson, Tage, yeah. Sorry, but. No, you're right. You get my point here. Like those guys, at least did something to have the audacity to do it before you even start your career. Is yeah, yeah yes. it's concerning for. I'm telling you, the messed up thing is like years. he didn't even demand. He didn't even demand the trade. He just he just had his agent tell them that we're not talking to you. Unbelievable. Don't reach they out to him. Don't talk to him. Known He's that. not playing here. They probably should have known that before picking him. And acted accordingly. Well, the thing is that he told them before they picked him that he'd love to be a flyer. And then he became a flyer and decided he didn't want to be one anymore. Did you see the stuff that Kevin Hayes might have influenced him? I don't know if you saw any of that. Yes, because some reporter decided they needed a quick buck and a couple of extra clicks and made up some random crap Mm -hmm. about Kevin Hayes influencing him because Kevin Hayes is American. That guy should be fired. That, That guy should be pushed out a window. That's terrible reporting, and you're hurting a man's livelihood. They people were sending death threats to Kevin Hayes. That's awful. Yeah. That guy should be absolutely ashamed of himself for reporting such random crap like that for a click. Disgusting. That's how the media is now. It's disgusting. Not about being right, it's about being first. Disgusting. And it's not about morals. It's about being first. No, there's definitely no morals involved in that one. People, people sending Kevin Hayes death threats and telling him they're glad his brother died because one Ooh. random asshole decided to write some stupid crap. Uh, disgusting. That but in fairness, we shouldn't be blaming the reporter for that because grown adults should know better than to wish death threats on a guy and say that they're glad his brother's dead. I don't know. Grown adults definitely don't know it. They're usually yeah, Maple Leafs fans. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> anyway, that's all I had for hockey news. Back to regularly scheduled baseball programming. I think that Manfred's might be it, right? Uh, I, think, um, I think we're ending the podcast on Manfred Sucks, huh? Manfred sucks. How would he handle the Black Sox scandal? <laughs> um, he How would Rob Manfred handle the Black Sox scandal? <laughs> That's a really good question. You know what he would do, Zach? You know give what he would immunity. do? Nothing. He would give the players <laughs> immunity. Nothing. That's no, no, right. No, he, he would give the players listen, immunity. Tell me what happened. I'll give you immunity. <laughs> he, dude, he, would call him to the, he would call him into his office. They'd sit down. He'd pour him a drink. And then he'd go over to the couch. He'd sit down, he'd pat his lap and say, come here, rest your head on my lap and tell me everything that happened. And then in the report, it'll say, only one veteran player, in parentheses, Eddie Seacott, was the ringleader of the scandal, even though it was really chick. And then nothing would happen. And then he'd be on the Hall of Fame ballot, he'd wait a year or two out of spite, and then ultimately get in, just like Carlos Beltran will in a couple years. Probably not wrong. And that wraps up the 1919 episode of Championship Wharf Bust. The first real notable World Series has come to an end. We got plenty more in store for you coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Peace.